session with Dr. Farid Holak. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary of the book for the past week, the book for this week is Cutting Understanding and Overcoming Self-Mutilation by Stephen Levincron. Um, I wanted to do a book on this topic of cutting because it's unfortunately more common than people might think, or in a way, fortunately, I say in the sense that uh, people should know that others are doing it. Sometimes people can feel very alone and ashamed of doing it. And there's a lot of misconceptions and people misunderstand a lot about it, especially parents who might have a teen who is uh, doing some kind of self-mutilating or cutting behavior. So I wanted to do a book on that. So it's Cutting by Stephen Levincron. Um, okay, the book for this past week had a title that I mentioned uh, made me almost upset, and which is why I ended up picking it and reading it, and that was Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. Against Empathy, the Case for Rational Compassion. Um, and I think that he did a good job picking the title because it does like it did to me, grab your attention and make you think, how is that possible? Or how could that be a good thing? And it makes you want to uh, look further. So as I said last week, I was at the bookstore and saw the book and it almost made me upset. And I almost, I thought I'm not going to read that. Or even when I looked at it a little bit more, I wanted to not like it because the title of Against Empathy was a little bit strange for me and against what I thought of as, um, going against something good, which is empathy. But he does make an interesting, uh, as he calls it, case for rational compassion, which I'll talk about what that means, and in a way a case against empathy. So to begin with, uh, the title does grab your attention, but he is not 100% against empathy in all contexts and all the time. He does, throughout the book, sprinkle places where he sees the good of empathy or how it actually can be a good thing. So he's not... 100% against it. He does feel that rational compassion would be better. Now, another important point to make is that uh, this word empathy sometimes can be misunderstood, or in a way we almost see empathy as meaning anything related to kindness, goodness, even compassion, um, being good to other people, being moral, And so when someone hears against empathy in a way, how I reacted to, you think someone's being against kindness or against being good, against being nice. But that's not necessarily the case. We've kind of lumped all those things together with empathy. And empathy's definitely um, been kind of a hot topic. I forgot how many books he said. It was either 1,500 or 15,000 books on Amazon had the, the title Empathy in them. Uh, or the word empathy in the title. Um, So 
many people are talking about it in a way it's a very popular thing to say to promote and to talk about and to say is good so i think again that's what makes the title of his book even more controversial or grabbing grabbing your attention um so empathy is feeling with or feeling someone else's pain or emotion uh, sometimes we talk about putting ourselves in someone else's shoes so that's what empathy is it's not necessarily being kind maybe you think it would lead to kindness or doing good things but when we look at just empathy itself it's feeling with feeling the other person's pain um, and there's also a distinction between them and i think that one is important because to me uh, one is not only say better but can be less costly than the other so there's cognitive empathy which to me is more understanding the other person's feelings so i can understand that what happened made you upset that's cognitive empathy. And then there's emotional empathy. This is where you actually feel the other person's pain. So they get upset and you put yourself so much in their shoes that now you feel upset too. You feel angry or they're sad and you imagine yourself if you were them so much that you actually feel the sadness. And to me, even the emotional empathy can be helpful at times. Um, I think the cognitive empathy is much better and actually... I think is something we should be engaging in often. Now, so he says, why is empathy not good? Um, so first of all, he says that empathy makes us myopic or short-sighted. It also can make us biased. And also, it makes us sometimes make irrational or uh, decisions that actually aren't very moral. And by that, he means we can show instances that because you're exposed to, let's say, pictures or video or even, let's say, seeing someone who is suffering, you might choose some option that would help that one person and sacrifice maybe 20 other people that you aren't looking at or seeing. So the pull of empathy, as he's arguing, can be bad because it makes us not really look at things in a rational way and make the most moral decision. That's actually what he's saying, is that although people think of empathy as something that makes us more moral he says actually you can make us choose things that are less moral so that's a a great example of it picking one person to help rather than helping many people because we're faced with that person we're feeling their pain so in that way it can make us make what could be looked at as a bad decision um so what other things does he talk about that are not good about empathy uh, he also says it's hard for us um to not get pulled in by our own biases. For example, we're more likely to feel empathy for people that are more like us, whatever that might mean. Uh, could be gender, could be ethnicity, could be political affiliation, whatever else it might be. Empathy can make us in that way very biased because you'll feel more for people that are more like you. And as he puts it, if you use uh, rational compassion, meaning that you have care for all people, but you think things through, you can recognize, okay, I'm feeling more for people that are like me, but everyone's life is of equal worth. And because of that, I should make a more fair decision. I don't want to be pulled by that. Um, he also says that empathy can be exploited to make us respond in an irrational way. So it pulls on our, our emotions and maybe that could push us to say we should go to war because we see people suffering, especially if we see people suffering who look like us. So it actually might make us not think about 
the consequences of what's going on. And he's, he puts it also makes us myopic and short-sighted because we're feeling the other person's pain. We just do what feels right or good in that moment, not thinking of future generations or the bigger picture sometimes unless until it's too late. So he makes these, these uh, arguments against empathy, and a lot of them are very good ones. He also talks about how empathy can be very draining. And I think that makes sense, especially, again, the emotional empathy. And that's where I think the key distinction is. And for me, it was interesting. He had a, a kind of a section on therapists or different people in the helping fields and how when we are too empathic, we feel too much empathy, that can lead to burnout. And I think that makes sense. If every client that walked into my office, I felt everything they were feeling, I would be overwhelmed. If a you know, depressed client comes in and I feel as depressed as them, or if I feel depressed, if that anxious client comes in, I feel their anxiety and I'm feeling tense and, and nervous and anxious and, and so on and so forth, I would probably be very drained at the day after a day of seeing a few clients. Um, but to me, the key would be having cognitive empathy, meaning, and I have to have that. I have to try to understand my clients, understand their pain, maybe not necessarily feel it, but understand it. If they don't feel that I understand them, they probably won't feel very good and won't want to come back because that's a very important thing. So for me, that key distinction is important, that it's important to feel or understand what they feel, not necessarily feel it so much yourself. And even to me, you're going to feel it a little bit. Um, I think it's hard to switch these things on and off. We can try to tell ourselves to feel this or not feel this, but usually we won't be so successful, but we can be aware of how we're um, acting on it. And that to me is also important, that what you feel doesn't mean uh, it's going to be your action. Your feelings don't have to dictate your actions. You can feel something, understand it, and then still choose to do something that goes against that. So as a therapist, I think he makes a good point in that or even as a medical doctor, that you want the person who's acting to have some space from you, meaning that you don't want them to feel so close or feeling everything you're feeling. If you come in and you're anxious, you don't want your therapist to get so anxious because now they can't help you. So he makes a good point that an effective therapist needs to be able to have some distance between themselves and their clients in order to um, maintain what is going on and help the client. And I've definitely felt that. And the same thing goes to parents. I think it is important, especially to have the cognitive empathy and at times even some of the emotional empathy with your children. But if your child comes to you and is crying and then you start crying, well, now you can't help take care of your child. You can't be there for him or her. And now the child, in a way, uh, has the problem of crying, but also worrying about you that are crying now and won't know what to do. So as a parent, what I think is good is to reflect the cognitive empathy and even maybe in some ways show some of the feeling that you understand what they're feeling, but maintain your own composure and your own stability so you can be there for them and be comforting to them. If a baby is crying, they don't want you to cry. They want you to show that you understand that they're sad, that you can make sense to you that they're sad, that you don't like that they're sad. So a degree, you might even show some sadness, but that you're okay and you're going to help them feel okay too. That's what, what they need. And of course, from a friend as well. Um, and he also talks about, you know, going when we're looking at parents, mothers, but also other people who can be too empathic, who take on the emotions of everyone around them, almost like a sponge. And we might think what a caring person, but they get so overwhelmed that they're likely going to burn out 
become resentful of the people around them or not be able to help them very much. If you're taking on so much emotionally, you're not going to be able to take care of people or be there for people because you won't be able to even take care of yourself. You're going to burn out and not be okay. So I really do agree with a lot of those things that he said. Um, sometimes I felt that arguments he made to me didn't make total sense uh, or I couldn't fully get behind. Like he was saying with empathy, one of the things we can do is, and people do show this, where they'll see something and because it doesn't make them feel good, they'll just ignore it as a way to deal with what they're feeling or to not feel that way. So he says empathy is not really a good moral guide because if you approach it with compassion, you won't feel so much, but you'll know it's right to act and you'll make that decision. But he talks about the same thing with a parent and that if almost like if a baby is crying, the mom could just walk out of the house and avoid feeling sad if, they're, if, if, if empathy was what was driving them to be good to them. But I didn't agree with the fact that the mom could just leave the house or turn her back and wouldn't feel anything. Of course, she would still carry in her mind that her child was, was suffering. But um, other than that, and also with parenting, he, he talks about how empathy can get you in trouble if you're too empathic with your child, in that sometimes as a parent, you have to make decisions that in the moment don't feel good to your kid. And to me, that definitely makes sense. I don't think that means that empathy is all bad, because you can understand what your child feels and still make a different decision. So to me, although he says against empathy and he at times I think makes it seem like you can just choose one feeling or one thing. So he, let's say choose anger over empathy or choose compassion over empathy. And you can work on that to a degree to improve or increase the level of compassion. I don't think it means you should just shut off empathy because to me, a child can come to you and say, I still want to play. And Yes, if you were so empathic that you only felt what the child was feeling in that moment, you'd say, yeah, play some more. But you can recognize, let's say, if it's bedtime or the child has to go to school or something else, you can say, I can understand you want to play because it's fun. So you have that cognitive empathy, but we have to go do this or it's time for bed or whatever else it might be. You can still act differently or say something or respond in a way that isn't just pure empathy. Um, so in my opinion, it's more about integrating empathy and compassion, empathy and cognitive empathy, especially, and rational compassion, as he puts it. But his case for rational compassion is a good one. To um, have compassion means have loving kindness or have positive feelings towards, it could be everyone. Um, and that's another thing he says, that it's really hard to have empathy for everyone. We usually just feel it for one person at a time, and it's hard to have that. And I think that's a good point that in a way it could make us less moral because we can really focus just on one person where may, many, maybe many people are suffering and we need to attend to that. Um, but with rational compassion, he says, he argues that we should think things through. We should be looking at what we're doing while having a positive feeling for all people, while recognizing that all lives uh, matter the same as other lives and we should care about other people in the same way. So if you see someone suffering and someone else suffering, we shouldn't try to get pulled in and whose suffering matters more or who's a better person or who deserves our help. We really just look at everything as equally as we can. Um, and even he shares some research showing that compassion leads to less burnout than empathy. So having a loving kindness for people and feeling that, which in a way has some distance between you and them, you don't feel their pain, that can be invigorating and give you energy and make you feel good. 
Whereas having empathy can really be draining and take out a lot of energy and it's hard to do it for a long period of time. So I think there are a lot of good arguments he makes against empathy, not completely. And he does say that he doesn't think empathy should just be wiped out. Um, but as I said, I think the integration of compassion and empathy uh, can be very important. And I think there's a key distinction to be made, which he talks about at the beginning of the book and, and talks about here and there, but I think it seems to me he's more against emotional empathy than cognitive empathy. Um, and to me, that emotional empathy can be overwhelming and drive us a lot of times in the wrong directions. But the cognitive empathy, really understanding other people, I think is key and critical and something that we should focus on, along with uh, improving our compassion and our rational compassion. So to me, the integration should be the goal, not just removing one and focusing on the other. But it was an interesting read. Um, again, because there's so much talk of empathy these days, it was definitely an attention grabber to see a book called Against Empathy. And he makes some good arguments that definitely made me think, and I'll have to continue to think about um, as I, I reflect on the book. So if you'd like to check it out, it's Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And I'll say the book again for this week, Cutting by Stephen Levincron, Understanding and Overcoming Self-Mutilation. I'll talk about that next week, likely on Monday's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, hello Dr. John. Hi, no, thank I hear my voice. Okay. Um Come back to me. I'm not sure why that is. If we're on speaker, I'd say definitely take no, it off speaker. It's not. No, I'm a landline and a huh. normal phone. Okay. So, okay, I'm going to start talking. All right. Um Dr. John, my question is about my role. Um uh, to how to fix the relationship between these uh, two boys that I have, 40 years old and 33 years old. They used to work with each other, but uh, after a uh, office policy or something, they separated um, work-wise, job-wise. But in middle of this uh, situation, they got hurt of each other, and they don't talk to each other. Mm. What's my role in between? Should I just ignore it, let them solve themselves, or should I try to fix it? What can well, I do? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why, you know, I was, um, that word fix jumped out at me, uh, you know, to fix, and even to fix our own relationships is going to be tough because we need the other person involved to want to work on it but to try to fix two other people's relationship we have to recognize it's not our responsibility mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say you have to ignore it mm -hmm. um but i would say take the pressure off yourself that it's your responsibility to fix it and you can talk to them about it and see what they say and and if they want to talk you can facilitate to a degree but you have to let them at their age figure it out and see what they want to do you know, they're brothers, but they don't have to be close if they don't want to be. But it seems like it's really bothering you that they're not close. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So if uh, between you and your brother something happens, do, do you think Dr. Holakwe is not <laughs> going to interfere? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to speak on behalf of anyone, even my <laughs> own father. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, he might, you know, you could talk to each of them, like I said, individually, but I w- you have to just make sure you don't push too hard. And that's, but just the the fact that you said the word, how, what's my role in fixing the relationship was the first way you asked it. Yeah. That makes me think my concern would be you might come on too strong. Of You guys have to, okay, get together. See, you know, that's a lot of times what parents do is they can't tolerate the, they it's can't tolerate any hard. feelings. It's yeah. very hard to see them so, you know, angry at each other. Uh, but uh, I stayed away from, uh, has been a long time, couple mm-hmm. of, maybe two months, but it's getting too long, and I thought they're going to fix it themselves. But I thought maybe I can play a role. But you think that, no, huh? I better stay away from it. Well, you've, well we can talk a little bit about what ha- what's happened, even, you know, you're giving me some details there of how long it's been. So you said for... I know the details. For, it's t- not, uh, yeah, it's, it's for two months? Of their uh, offices. They, the yeah. older one that um, he was in a, uh, they, they were working together as a group, and he decided to leave this uh, office, go to work with another company. And the younger ones uh, tried to stay in the uh, first one and not work as a uh, uh, group in my uh, older one, older son. And in between, there was some uh, no talking, don't say anything. Lawyer got involved that mm. um, the kids that are gone from the, this company to other one shouldn't talk to each other. And they, uh, he respected that. And the other one is hurt about that. Mm. That's why you didn't tell me and this and that. It's kind of policy, I mean, work-related yeah. okay. uh, matter. So and I feel so bad uh, when I see them. They were worked together for a long time. They live kind of in the same city in uh, L.A. and uh, very close. And suddenly this happened, and I have to watch them um, getting further and further away from each other. And it hurts. So, mm-hmm. but I can't do anything. Huh? There's not much you can do. I mean, yeah, and did you say? So. Did you say it's just been two months? Yeah, two months. Okay, two so, months. Uh-huh. you know, that's pretty fresh. I'd say, uh-huh. you know, you want to be patient with it. Okay. Um, another okay. thing, and this is not necessarily just in your case, but I see it a lot with parents, because they can't tolerate the conflict, maybe yeah. between anyone, but especially between their kids, if they do get involved, which, again, I would say if you do, you're very minimally, and if they want you, but don't don't mm-hmm. force yourself, mm-hmm. because they just want to solve the conflict, or not even just solve it, they want to remove the conflict, they almost are unable to hear what their kids are telling them. So if your son comes and says, I can't believe he did this and I'm so mad at him for this and this and this, usually what I hear parents in your type of shoes or the way you're describing yourself say is, well, it's okay. He's your brother. Forgive him. It's okay. They just want to take away. Good. So I want to make sure you empathize. And it's actually funny. I was Mm -hmm. just talking about empathy in the previous segment, but in the cognitive sense, show that you understand. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I can see how you didn't like that. I can see how that upset you. Yeah, yeah. And I feel about both of their case. When the, the older one says something, I feel it. Empathy that you were talking about, exactly. <laughs> and the second one, both of them, they have a uh-huh. of, you know, um, they have a right to be angry at each other. Okay. But um, I don't know why they cannot forget, not forget, but somehow don't get hurt about it and move on. But... Well, if you're saying they have a right to be angry, then you can't also say, I don't know why they're hurt by it. That's true. So if you understand, I think, again, you're having a hard time tolerating 
Yeah. Now, now we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe they'll never have a relationship again. Maybe in some time they'll work things out or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But I think you're having a hard time tolerating this. You're saying, okay, I get it, it is related to what I was just saying. Okay, you don't like it, but don't feel anything. Don't be mad at him. Go be friends with him. Go be close to him. And you have to give them it's their space. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you have to give them their space, especially because of their age. Even if they were younger, even if they were living in your home, I would say, you know, don't force them because I think that's what parents do because mm-hmm. we have such a hard time dealing with the negative feelings, dealing mm-hmm. with conflict. And very yeah. often in our Persian families, we have such dependent relationships that we can't tolerate any kind of discord or separation mm-hmm. or space. Mm-hmm. And we try to force uh, just not even an s- actual solution, but just a removal of any feeling or problem. And that's not the way we want to deal with it. So especially with their ages, you got to give them time to, okay. to work it out. If they want you involved, even mm-hmm. still, I wouldn't get yourself too involved, even if they ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, but make sure you're not putting a pressure on them to, okay. to push. If you try to, you know, most times when you try to push someone in a direction, they go the other way. Okay. Thank yeah. you very much, Doctor. Sure. Can I have another question? Of course. Okay. I have, I have um, a grandma, mm-hmm. three um, little boys, mm-hmm. and uh, my my daughter-in-law is American, and I'm having a hard time uh, with that uh, culture conflict, and um, looks like she doesn't like me. Okay. And, um, and I cannot say I like him, I like her, but... Um, I do whatever I can to take care of the kids whenever they need to go to a trip or something. I go and take care of them. When I go there, I actually be bought a house there so we can come and help them and everything. But the, I don't see any close relationship. I, I think I tried very hard to make it happen, but didn't. Um, is there anything else besides leave it and just act upon the, um, you know, help that they need? Well, is I mean, there anything else the, I can do? the first thing you said is like, I not, you kind of were saying you're not sure if you like her or love her. What's going on there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The feeling is not there. I see that. I see that, that um, as a um, daughter-in-law, maybe I don't approve the way that she managed their life. Uh, maybe I, I show it in my face or something, but I do whatever I can to help them with the kids, with their house and everything. Whenever they need me, I live in the East Coast and I go there to help them. But I, I don't think she likes me either. Well, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, we could talk about that part, but you didn't make it clear. You don't know. You were almost ta- talking as if you were talking about someone else. Why don't you like her? No. Are you? Do you not want to say? Is it that that she's not Iranian? Is it? I wish I maybe bottom of my heart. I wish was a Iranian raised in America like my kids. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, I you might have to. That. You might have to take that wish and put it on a star. Not that it comes true, but just get rid of it because this is your your son's wife, and you have yeah, to accept yeah. it's, that. It's finished. It's finished. Yeah, yeah, I know. You have kids and everything. How can I um, solve this problem? Should I, of course, uh, in another, when they start um, their marriage or something, we start talking on the email. I guess we uh, clear the atmosphere off and everything. But clear, clear the atmosphere of what? Clear the why. clear the atmosphere of what? Um, 
she, she said something that uh, I, I had problem with uh, you acting like this, and I said I, prob- I had a problem like this. So I talked, we talked it over, and everything was fine. But um, I guess bottom of relationship is not clear, is not um, loving, is not, uh, we are just um, act like a, yeah. Formal uh, mother-in-law, and Which, I want to have a more close relationship. Okay. Then you're you're going to have to love her more and approve of her more. I think. I mean, I can understand from her standpoint what you're saying is you never fully approved of her, and I'm sure she felt that. Yeah. So yeah. how can we expect her to to be so lovey-dovey and loving with you if she feels that you, she's not accepted? How can I approve her? Her situation, her lifestyle. How can I approve when I see the way that? So what does what does she do that you don't like? Uh, it's hard to say, but she, the way that she doesn't take care of. The, no, I cannot say that. I I cannot say that. It's too harsh. She's she's good. She's good, but I'm bad maybe because nobody likes me. I have problem actually with everybody. Nobody likes me. Okay, Let's I start with that. Yeah, I didn't say it. You did, but okay. Nobody likes you. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that uh, I'm in a bad akhlaq. Um, uh-huh. So bad. You have a kind of bad attitude or bad yeah, mood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you seem to. So you feel like you don't get along with most people. It looks like it. Okay. Are you? You mentioned something. We bought a house. So, are, are you married or you're not married? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm married. I'm to, married, 40 years. To your, okay, so this is to your... Husband. And to your parent, uh, the, your son's father. Uh, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay, yeah, exactly. so how is, how is your marriage? It's not good. It's not bad. He's a very good guy, but I'm not in a um, loving relationship. Okay. It looks like that he loves me, but as I said, I have problem liking or loving people. Yeah. I, I always complain, I always nag, I always um, disapprove of everything. Um, uh, uh-huh. uh, yeah. And well, everybody you, says something like that about hmm. me. Well, you know, I want to get a little bit more deep into what's going on here. We're, we're just about at a commercial break. Because I'll also say one very good sign is at least you're, you have some self-awareness or you're looking at it in that way. You've made my job a lot easier because you told me no, yeah, nobody likes me. Whereas I'm a very self-critical of myself. Yeah, well, that 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 if, that's for sure. If you're telling me you don't like, if you have a hard time liking other people, I have a hard time thinking you're going to like yourself very much. But yeah. after the break, let's talk a bit more, okay? Okay, thank oh, you very much. Thank you. All right, studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. We'll be right back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to her. Radio Hammer, are you still there? Okay. Let's talk a bit about you, because we started off talking about your sons. Yes. Uh, then we got into your daughter-in-law, and then you yourself <laughs> shared that you said you think nobody likes you, or you have a hard time getting along exactly. with people. But the fact that you even shared it tells me something, because there's some people that don't get along with a lot of people, um, and they think everyone else is the problem. 
-hmm. Maybe that's how you feel. And then there's some people that don't get along with other people. They think they're the problem, which is how you seem to share it. How do you, how do you see the situation? I see the situation that I all the time judge people for my belief. Mm -hmm. Um, If the standard is not there, I judge them that they are not in my level or they are not, uh, uh, you know, reaching to that approval rate that I have. Yes. And uh, I see people that they are not like that. They are just getting along, let it go, and doesn't, I don't, they don't care. I guess I care for relationship, being a better level to communicate and reach to the point that we reach to a certain agreement, or I don't know what I'm looking for, but yeah. I cannot just go by the normal uh, everyday relationship and be approved of that. I always think that when I come from the um, encounter with my friend or something, I have to have a feeling of a, um, happiness or getting uh, something out of it, learning something, but I just cannot go with a um, normal relationship. Mm-hmm. So maybe I show it or yeah. in my face or something. Well, there was something you said that you know other people don't care. Um, and some people don't care about some of the things you said at the end. But as far as being judgmental, uh-huh. it doesn't mean if you're non-judgmental, you don't care about anything or you don't see anything. Sometimes uh-huh. people think if you're not judging, it's because you didn't notice. No, you can notice something just like you can notice your child isn't good at art or does this or does that. And you still love them so much. It's not that you don't see it. You see it and you know, first of all, we have to accept all humans, including ourselves, are imperfect and yeah. have weaknesses or are not going to be good in lots of ways, are going to make mistakes, are going to let us down, we're going to let ourselves down. Mm-hmm. And we have to accept this part of being human. But uh, there's a judgmentalness that you yourself described that I think is getting in the way of you showing yeah. that love and feeling that love for others and, again, yourself too. Were your parents very critical people? I don't think so, but okay. the, the way I um, listened to Dr. Holakui, and he always mentioned mother, teacher, and the father, uh, army is a bad combination. I had that, mm-hmm. but they were not critical. No, I was the first uh, born, and I was very loose, actually, maybe. Um, hmm. uh, I don't see that. Just uh, they expected a good um, studying habit. That's all I remember they expected from us. Okay, but how about with behavior? Do you feel like they weren't strict in the home? No, no, I was very yeah, free and whatever I wanted to do. Of course, I went to a, a Catholic school in Iran. Hmm. Um, maybe they were strict, but I don't think so. I don't see any pressure from the upbringing. Okay. Um, were, they, were they judgmental themselves in how they talked about other people? My mom was a, a little bit like that, yeah. My oh. mom was like that. Okay, so tell me more about that. How was she judgmental? Uh, he was, she was. She's passed away. But uh, I remember she had a couple of um, sisters, and all the time they were gossiping behind each other, and she was um, bossy about them, do this, do that. Maybe I, yeah, I see that. I see okay, that there could have been like some that. of that there. Was there any kind of verbal or physical abuse in the home? No, 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 not at all. Not at no, all. No, okay. No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and your and your father. How, what was he like? I mean, you said he was in the military. What? She, 
I was very close. Actually, that was not bad, according to Dr. Holakwe. I was very close to my father, and I was um, not liking my mom when I was a teenager or, uh, you know, a small girl. But there was a very close relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. And she was, he really liked me, and whatever I said in the family, that was my <laughs> decision, whenever, uh-huh. even I was very little. No. You mean, when you say it was your decision, you mean even over your mom? Uh, over the, about the family, um, they were listening to me. I was part of the family decision-making or something. I felt that, that way. Maybe they didn't act on it, but I felt that way I was somebody in the, uh-huh, in the uh-huh. family. Uh, and then who, how many siblings did you have and how much younger two, were they? Two younger brothers. Okay. Three years old, uh, younger, three years younger than me, and the, ter- the third one, six, six years younger than me. Okay. Two brothers. Yeah. It's almost like, so you, you, the way you felt like you had a mother-type role in your family. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah. maybe you felt your job was to, to, to judge and to tell people what, what to uh-huh. do or what's good good and bad from, from a young mm-hmm. age. Because mm-hmm. you, I, I, I was thinking your parents oh, would have been I more critical. I think about it that way. Yeah, you're right. But, I'm sorry. No, that's Go fine. Ahead. But also, the way you're describing I know you said you were close to your father, although mm-hmm. maybe that was unhealthy because yeah. uh, you weren't supposed to be so close to him, maybe closer to your mother. And also, how were you with your siblings, with your two brothers? some fight but we had a good time but I left around when I was 17 years old so I left um, to Germany and um, so we didn't have that much close relationship but till then we were okay just here and there some fight between siblings but nothing than that but uh, I don't know if I mentioned that I went to prison um, political prison for one year when I was in, uh, I came back from Germany for a um, summer, and... Um, how how old were you? Uh, 19. Yeah, 19. Yeah, 18 I went. Uh, 19 years old, yeah. And for how long? One year. Wow. Uh, for ridiculous reason. Well, of course, um, I was in the, under influence of my... Uh, that's a long story. Um... Uh, I had an uncle came back from Germany. He was uh, um, part of the communist revolution in uh, Venezuela or something. And he came back, and I was uh, under his his influence so much that I was in love with him. Hmm. And um, whatever he said, I was like a uh, slave to him. And um, when you say in love, did you was was it ever romantic? Of, yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't know what can I say about that, but he really abused me. And um, How did he abuse you? That I'm in love with you. He said that to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. felt it for him? Uh-huh. So was there a sexual relationship? Not sexual, but um, loving relationship. Loving relationship, yeah. Huh. Okay. Very strange, but she, he was um, crazy man, and I think that um, of course I was 17 when I encountered with him when he came back from Germany. Um, but when I look back, was a child abuse. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know that, and um, she he put me in this situation, and 
um, suddenly, without I knowing that I was in middle of the group <laughs> uh, activity, which I wasn't, I was aware that he was doing something like that, but I wasn't there. But when mm-hmm. I came back, Sova got me with three other kids and put us in the in jail. You know how how wow. was it? Fifty some uh, thir- uh, uh, Saleh, Panjo, Sochar in Iran was very bad. Harkasiki, read a book, it was in jail. So, but, yeah, so I mean, but he, you know, like you described him as, I think that definitely was an abusive mm-hmm. relationship. Were, did you share anything with your family? What did they know about what was going on? I guess on? Savak shared something like that. I, we never mentioned, but he, they suffered a lot. Your they parents did? Yeah, yeah, mm. when they found out it. Yeah. It was a very bad situation. Yeah. We never spoke about it. But Did you ever get to deal with your your uncle about it or talk to him? No, when I came, of course, he, he, when he was in jail, he um, wrote it, what you say it, that I'm sorry. What you, like an apology letter? Apology or whatever Sawak wanted for him to do, he did and came out of the uh, prison, but all of us, we stayed in the um, jail. Oh, I thought you meant apology letter to you. He sent no, an apology no, no, to, to the Sawak government. in order to come out of the prison. Wow, okay. There is a word for it. I don't know what it is. Okay, that's fine. I kind of know. But he's she's basically um, taking back what he did, or ba- yeah, or yeah, saying he yeah. doesn't believe in what he was promoting. Exactly. Yeah, that's what Savak. But because he was a very big, big catch for Savak. I see. And they put it in this um, newspaper with all the names and everything. He yeah. was very, he after that he came out and starts writing some article in Kehan every afternoon. He was very very knowledgeable, very very knowledgeable. Okay. But that Philosophy seems and yeah. also, That's what I was so um, under in, his influence because the way he talked about everything. He knew he's like um, your father. Mm-hmm. He was like your father. Mm-hmm. He knew everything. Yeah. And, okay. Um, but so you know, uh, I this was very under his influence. I thought he was God, and he even he encouraged me to get a uh, gun from my father's, <laughs> and I did. I hmm. did. I was under that uh, his influence that much that I didn't think about anything. So my life actually changed because sure. I didn't go back to Germany to continue my oh, wow. education, mm-hmm. and I stayed in Iran and got a concours and I went to uh, university there and finished my uh, education, psychology. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then after I got married and I, I basically I got married because I wanted to make my parents happy because they suffered a lot and they liked my husband. Wow. So I went through that. And, Did um, you like your husband? He's a very good guy. Very good. Okay, but that's Very different good. than uh, how you feel about him. Uh, feeling it's, um, it's not love, I'm sure. Love oh. is different. I never uh, tasted love. Hmm. I never had a boyfriend or something. But um, Well, so in a way, your your uncle was the first yeah. person. That yeah. So we can yeah. see how that might have uh, yeah. made you not want to get close to anyone. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, yes, definitely, he damaged me. I'm, oh, damaged of course. And I couldn't uh, share with anybody. That's yeah, uh, that part's important too. I was going to say because you said we didn't talk about it after that because no, so. No, no, no. So did you ever get to talk to anyone or work through? You are the first Iranian oh. that I'm talking to. I went to two psychologists here, okay. which I didn't like. They mm. didn't even 
feel what I said, but I feel so co- close mm. to you and oh. Dr. Holakui that I'm sharing with you. But I never talked about it. Well, I'm, and, I'm very happy that you're sharing with me uh, and that, that I'm glad that you are. But I think it would be good for you to, to enter therapy so, with someone and, and yeah. give it a try because I think that that's a huge try. I mean, all of it together, your uncle, the whole relationship and mm-hmm. how inappropriate it was and how you felt mm-hmm. definitely was abusive. And then after that, to be in prison for a year. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. because of your love for him, mm-hmm. in a way, because you said it was because of his influence that you did what you did. And then mm-hmm. I'm, I can't imagine that's not going to have a huge impact on your desire, ability, everything to want to be close to people, especially romantically, mm-hmm. but to get close. How could it not make you afraid you know it was such a betrayal at such a deep level i'm wow. sure trust is not going to be easy for you mm. okay yeah yeah I, I so i hope i really do hope um and i can also imagine i don't want to say you're feeling this but lots of shame or a lot of negative feelings probably came even about yourself with everything you went through maybe not or maybe it's just anger directed towards him but often people who are in some type of an abusive relationship mm-hmm. of some kind can can put it on themselves a lot. Do you feel mm-hmm. like you did that at all? Um, in, the, in relation to my parents, uh-huh. I always t- thought that I put them down and they suffered a lot. Mm. Because the first visit that I had from my father, <sighs> the first visit, he, mm. he all his hair was white. Mm. Gosh, that that that's must After have been so three hard. After uh, being in prison, he came to visit me, hmm. and the whole hair was white, and I never forget that. And um, hmm. I always thought that I made them suffer a lot, so I owed them. That's why I went through this marriage. Well, I'm glad that he's demand that he is because could be yeah it could have been worse but but you still you know you made you made one of the maybe the most or one of the most important decisions in your life for your parents which that part i don't feel good about for you but it it was so sad and they did i'm sure they suffered so much having your young daughter in prison but you were of course suffering even more than them and you were in there a lot because of your uncle who was inappropriately in a relationship with you and influencing you in a negative way and then even he himself gets himself out of prison by taking back everything you know he told you to fight so much for that feels very very unfair but it seems like you didn't hold on to your own feeling as much and you were focused even more on your parents but gosh that's that sounds devastating and horrible once you went through and i think you probably carry with you a lot of pain for sure, yeah. and that sadness, but then also a lot of anger from what what you experienced and what you had to go through. And maybe yeah. that's what you feel with the judgmentalness you have could partially be related to that. It's just this anger that you have um, at people, at things, that things are supposed to be a right way, um, a right and uh-huh. wrong. You know, you want, uh-huh. it's, it, it seems pretty intense. I really would hope you go go to therapy and if you don't like you know therapist has to understand you so you have to feel that and so you might have to f- go through a few but i hope you wouldn't give up on that and just i don't uh, like the um, psychologists american psychologists no they don't feel that oh, they don't know what i'm hmm. through 
I was thinking of, of when I come to L.A., maybe I come to you because Dr. Holakwe doesn't practice anything. Yeah. So maybe we can put it on your shoulder. <laughs> well, I don't, it's not about putting on my... You know, it's, it's always going to be you that's going to go through it. I, I would be more than happy to be someone that gets to be part of the process. You're going to do the hard work. But the reason why I resist that is because I want you to see someone regularly uh, where you are. But if you say one day when I come here, and then even if you come here, if you see me a couple of times, that's not probably going to do it the way that you need to build a relationship. Yeah, you know, because especially because what you went through were these really bad relationships, you're going to need to have build a healthy relationship with your therapist. That's going to be one of the things that's going to help heal. So I, I, I've worked with lots of therapists of various backgrounds, and I found many of them to be warm and empathic regardless of their background and i've seen iranian therapists that aren't very warm so yeah. i don't think it's just a cultural thing and there does seem to be something with culture even with your uh, daughter-in-law that her being american is something that uh, gives yeah. you a negative feeling maybe you have i think some mixed feelings even about being iranian and maybe sometimes that makes you get mad at other cultures because you're upset with your own culture that Look at what you went through because of everything in Iran. So, I never thought that way. Yeah, there's a lot of complex things that you're dealing with, and maybe you want to judge some people. And I can get that, yes, they won't understand what it was like. I was born here, so it's not that I'm going to fully understand what things were like in Iran. So yeah. you're, what you're telling me, I was trying to understand, but you know, I don't have some knowledge of what the things you were talking about in that year being so bad. or I don't know much about it, but I think I was still able to understand it enough to connect with you, and I hope you can trust that you can find that too so I, I would really put a lot of effort into that because this is a, a old trauma that you're carrying with you and it's a long one i mean we're talking about the relationship with him and then mm -hmm. the year in prison so so please please do that i thought i'm being uh, uh, very very strong to not talk about it and just hold it to myself and yeah. carry it that's unfortunately the message that we yeah. we give you know, everyone gives to everyone somehow that it's stronger not to feel. It's stronger if you show you don't feel. To not ask for help is stronger than to you ask know, for help. It's something that I cannot um, share with anybody, you know? Well, maybe not anybody. Maybe some, maybe, I can understand, I wouldn't say just go share it with a lot of people. You have to feel comfortable with them. But d carrying it alone makes it even harder. You know, a lot of times we go through something, someone, you know, a, a family member dies, and no one could bring that person back. But having the support of people that love us around us can make it easier to bear that pain. And so you've been carrying all this pain alone, making it even harder and also making it like you're holding on to secrets in a, in a way that's not... It is secret. Yeah, yeah. but that makes it, it seem even worse or make you feel even worse about it. So I really hope you'll you'll take that risk of finding a therapist and you don't like the first one, go to another one. And maybe it's something about you that's not giving them a chance. So be aware of that, too. Just like with your daughter-in-law, maybe you're judging her before you know her. Her life might be different. Her lifestyle might be different than an Iranian, but doesn't make it necessarily wrong. So I hope you'll give her a chance, too. But first and foremost, rather than worrying about your sons and their relationship, worry about yourself and your own relationship with yourself and your own life. Like, uh, I wish I could uh, share it with my husband and two, because these three um, people that I care about, I wanted to make them aware of my feeling, but I cannot. I cannot share it, all these uh, secrets of my life. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to tell you you can, as in that you should, but I wouldn't say you necessarily can't for sure, you, and you have to think about that. Maybe you can share it with your husband. 
it's something to, to look at. It, it might be, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but at least first I would start with in the therapy, you might even be able to explore that and see how you feel and figure it out. No, okay. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much for calling. Please, sure. please take Thank care of yourself. You, you deserve that, okay? Thank you very much. All right. Have a great Thank day. You. Take care. You too. Bye bye. All right. We've reached our next commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Doctor Fatty Delac. We will be right back. Back studio three one zero four four one zero five five five. Last week on Wednesday, there was unfortunately another school shooting in Florida where seventeen people were killed. And uh, as always, I won't say the name of the gunman. Um, and today, I won't get too much into the victims. I just wanted to share some thoughts on, on what's going on in the debate around it. So. We know that oftentimes we hear two sides of uh, two arguments, basically. One is that we need more gun control, uh, usually on the left, and the other side says that um, it's not about guns, it's about mental illness. And as a psychologist, I don't like this claim that this has to do with mental illness or uh, talking about people who are mentally ill as more violent because the research shows that this is not the case. Uh, unfortunately, most people think that people who are mentally ill are prone to violence and commit lots of violence and are very dangerous, but actually they're much more likely to be the victims of violence than to perpetrate it themselves. Uh, but yes, if we look at a, someone who's going to go somewhere and shoot a bunch of people they don't know, there's going to likely be a mental illness component to it, yes, um, but the United States doesn't have higher rates of mental illness than other countries, but we have higher rates of these kinds of events because we have more guns, not because we have more mental illness. So to make the issue about mental illness, I think is missing the point. Now, do we need better mental health care? Do we want to, to be more proactive in how we do deal with kids, not just for them to commit violence against others, but suicide and just mental health? Absolutely. So I'm all about more mental health resources and to improve the way that we treat kids from a young age and um, rather than maybe kicking them out of schools, working with them, being more engaging with them, you know, it's very complicated how to deal with things like mental illness and this shooting. Um, but to think that we shouldn't do anything about guns to me is really unfortunate. Uh, I know in the United States where many people are very much in favor of the Second Amendment, um, and they take it that any regulation on guns is attacking their Second Amendment right. But we have the freedom of speech, the First Amendment, but it's not unlimited. It doesn't mean you can say anything anywhere, anytime, and in any way. You still have to be responsible, and at all times you can't use any of your rights to infringe on the rights of someone else. The classic example is you can't yell fire in a a very crowded theater because everyone might run out and people could be hurt or killed, and that's not okay. 
You can't go yell profanity at a playground and say it's my freedom of speech. You have to be aware of what you're saying. And there's many more limitations to that and anything else that we do. So I think um, the idea of having military-grade weapons available to people is is not acceptable in my idea. And I know some people might say we should get rid of all guns, and I, I would actually hope one day that could be the case. But I know so many people, it's part of their culture, uh, hunting, shooting, that I think that might not be the best way to go yet. And it's complicated to figure out how we're going to change things, but I, I think it's very unfair to not look at it at all. And I get very upset when people say now is not the time to talk about something because it's so soon after something uh, has just happened, the tragedy, and we should think about the families and the victims and send our thoughts and prayers. But I actually think that's the right time to talk about it. And I've mentioned it before. If I were to be killed by something, whether it's something related to gun violence or other issue, I would want people to talk about whatever it was related to my death immediately or as soon as possible because that would make my life not be lost in vain that we're actually going to look at the issue we don't want other people to die this way we don't want there to be other victims so i think it's not too soon to talk about it um, to look at what's actually going on if a plane crashes it's not too soon to talk about plane safety and see what happened not just say we're going to focus on the lives of those that were lost yes we're going to focus and honor those that were lost by looking at what's going on uh, and looking at the gun issue in a, from a psychological perspective, my own thinking on it, one of the reasons why I am not in favor of weapons being um, readily available and for people to have them on them at all times is because we are emotional creatures. We get angry, we get upset, and in the moment of being upset, we can make a bad decision. And if something is at our disposal, we might use that to make a bad decision. Not only are guns often used in violence against others, but guns are one of the leading ways that suicides are uh, committed or at least become completed. One of the reasons why men's have what you can call a higher suicide completion rate is that they're likely to use more lethal means, including guns, which are more likely to end in suicide leading to death. Um, so when I look at people, even myself, if you get me as angry as I can get, I, I can do something stupid. And if I had something that could cause great damage, maybe I would use it. Well, if you look at road rage, that's what you see. People are get angry and they do stupid things with their cars and they can be lethal in a way. But of course, cars have uh, a utility other than just causing harm. Um, so we, I wouldn't say get rid of all cars because people have road rage, but we see what people can do when they get angry and they get confrontational and they can take matters or try to take matters into their own hands. So to give people assault rifles that can kill large numbers of people, and really that's the main thing it's for, to me does not make sense. Um, I think if people had nuclear weapons strapped onto their body, we would think, well, people would be smart enough not to use them, but I would have no doubt that soon enough someone would fire it for some reason. They got angry with someone, they wanted to they were hurt by something, whatever it was, they would do that. So we have to be aware of our own limitations as people, as human beings, that we are emotional people. We can make mistakes. We do make bad judgments in the moment, especially when we get angry. We can do something very stupid, and we should want to limit what someone can do to someone else. So for that reason, 
I'm very much in favor of looking at the gun laws and how we can make them more, uh, make more sense and to lead to better results for people because we should not allow for this to happen and allow for those lives to be lost without looking at the situation more clearly. I also want to note I've been incredibly impressed by the students at the school who have been very vocal about what they think about gun control and have not relented, although the politicians have not responded, in putting out their message of what they think and feel and sharing their own experience of being there and not wanting anyone else to have to deal with what they had to see and deal with and also losing uh, friends and people at their school to to a mass shooting. So I think that's been amazing. So if you haven't already, go online and you can see some of the youngsters who were at the school and how they're making their voices heard. I think it's very commendable and motivating. And um, honestly, I saw some of them talking last night uh, and that's what made me think I definitely want to talk about this issue today because we can't be silent on the issues that matter. And I had to share my own thoughts and opinions on it. So, of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to everyone that was affected there uh, by the Florida shooting, the, the, those who were um, killed, their family members, all the kids who had to experience it, anyone affected in any way. But thoughts and prayers are not enough. We have to take action. We have to have conversations and make real change happen that can prevent these types of things from happening. And again, we don't have more mental health issues in the United States. We don't have more mental illness in the United States. We have more guns. That's what's leading to these shootings, not the mental illness issue. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back. I wanted to talk about another psychological concept that I've brought up before, but I think it's so important that I wanted to bring it up again, and that is distress tolerance, sometimes called frustration tolerance. Uh, different terms might describe it, but essentially what I'm talking about when I say distress tolerance is uh, our capacity to withstand negative emotions or feelings or states our ability to sit with those negative feelings or to be in those negative feelings. And it might sound insignificant or not very important, but it really is very critical and a key component of our mental health. Uh, and it might sound puzzling to someone to hear that our ability to withstand sadness, something negative, is a part of mental health. Because I think many people think if you're mentally healthy, you're going to be happy. You're not going to be sad. Um, you're not going to feel bad. So that, how does that fit in? But what we have to accept, just like how we have to accept that we're imperfect, and I was mentioning with the caller before, we're, as humans, we're imperfect. We, have, we make mistakes. We make bad decisions. We disappoint ourselves and other people. That's part of being human. We also have to accept that life is going to be difficult at times. It's not going to be easy. Achieving any significant goal is going to be hard and going to have obstacles and challenges 
uh, that we can foresee and some that we can't even foresee that relationships are always going to be difficult that picking the right partner doesn't mean the relationship becomes easy it just means it can become easier and more likely to be successful but it's still going to be hard work we have to also accept that life is going to be painful at times that life is going to make us feel bad at times or we're going to feel sad and bad or we're going to experience negative physical states too or negative things are going to happen in our life this is by no means um a way of saying we should be complacent so if we see something not going well in life or if we're not happy that we don't do anything about it but that we recognize that at times we have to accept that we feel a certain way or that something has happened and our capacity to feel this and to be okay with this is very important i've done an exercise before with working with kids and uh, even in my one of my seminars i did this i think it was the one on emotional intelligence but i had people hold an ice cube in their hand and let the ice cube melt in your hand and this becomes very painful pretty quick it gets really cold and you feel a lot of pain and of course there's a very strong desire to just you know knock the, the, the ice cube off and in this case of course we're forcing ourselves to go through it we could actually get away from the pain but it's just an exercise of looking at um, how we can experience discomfort so you have the ice cube on your hand and it gets very cold and you can even start to feel numb and I assured everyone that nothing really can happen to you as far as health goes. So you don't have to worry about freezing your finger off or any really huge negative consequences. It's just going to be uncomfortable for some time. And you let the ice cube melt and that pain is there. And actually, there's a lot of uh, things pulling us to try to ignore the pain or avoid it. But really, it's it's so strong you can't. And what people often find is if you focus more on it, accept it, it becomes better than when you try to avoid it or deny what you feel. Now, what the exercise shows us is that painful things are going to happen. We might have a painful experience, but they do go away too. They're not permanent. And so we have to withstand that. And actually, just like our positive feelings don't last forever, your negative ones don't last forever either. Sometimes we can talk about our emotions like the waves of an ocean. They're coming in and they're going out. And you, just like a wave, you can't pull a wave and keep it in or push a wave away. You have to just allow for them to come in and go out and accept that that's what's going to happen and be there with them. Now, where else does this become important, distress tolerance? Well, a huge area is with things like addiction, because very often someone who is prone to addiction or who is using either substances um, or food or gambling or sex or anything else, a negative coping mechanism what they're doing is they're having a hard time tolerating their feelings and they're trying to get away from it. I'm feeling really sad and that doesn't feel good. Let me have a drink. I'm feeling really anxious and I don't like that. Let me eat a lot of food to try to numb my feelings. So what we don't have the distress tolerance, we're more prone to go towards bad behaviors, behaviors that hurt us, especially in the long run, just to get an immediate fix to get away from that feeling. But we'd be much better off if we could actually just sit with the feelings. So I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling sad rather than turning for a drink to try to numb my pain or make me feel good. I can just sit with it and recognize it's going to go away. It's not going to last forever. Not only that, recognizing that this pain is likely going to tell me something if I look at it 
Our emotions are information. They tell us something. Okay, I feel sad right now. What is it that I'm sad about? Did something happen? Sometimes we can feel emotions and not know why. We're not always going to be able to know for sure what the why is, but oftentimes we can. Oh, wow, you know, at work today, my boss said a few things and I realized they actually maybe hurt me more than I realized. And so we can then use that information to, to grow and act on it in a different way. Maybe we'll let our boss know how we felt. Maybe we'll uh, recognize that we're taking it personally and try to shift our perspective. But we can use that emotion as information. But if we tried to avoid any kind of negative feeling, then we also lose that information. We don't learn from what's going on in our own life and we miss out on all those opportunities. So we're more prone to do negative things like uh, drugs, alcohol. We're also less likely to understand what we're going through because we won't actually look at what's going on. And it also affects our relationships because if we're not able to feel uncomfortable and feel sad and not feel good, we're going to avoid uncomfortable conversations, important conversations in our lives, or even looking at things in our own life. If I have no tolerance for feeling anxious, well, then I'm not going to go get a medical test to find out what's going on because I can't handle that anxiety of waiting to get the results or of not knowing how I would handle getting the results. But if I recognize it, it's going to be anxiety provoking while I'm waiting for the test and maybe I'll be upset. Maybe I'll be relieved. I don't know, but I'll be able to handle whatever emotion or emotions come my way. Then we're more likely to go in and, and take care of that. Similarly in our relationships, if I know that we're going to have this talk and it's not going to feel very good, I might get upset. You might get upset. A lot of feelings might come up. You might say things that might be hard for me to hear. And I might say things you might not like to hear. Well, if I can't accept that, then I'll avoid that talk. But if I can accept that, that yes, we're going to have this conversation. Some parts of it might not feel good while it's happening, but it's going to be good for us. Then I can go ahead and have that conversation. So we recognize that distress tolerance, although maybe seeming insignificant in some ways, that okay, well, what difference does it make? Or even actually someone might think it's a bad thing, as I was saying before, this idea that we think it's bad to be sad. So it's actually good for someone who, once they feel sad, that moment they take it away. They find a way to get away from it. They remove that feeling. Um, or especially, like I was saying with one of the callers today, they see their children fighting or people they know fighting, they quickly try to take away the, the feelings and the fight and just make everything disappear. We might think that's a healthy thing, but we can't just take away our feelings. They don't just get erased like some pencil markings. It doesn't work that way. We can't erase them ourselves. We have to allow for them to take their course. And this also relates to the idea that people have about the quote-unquote negative emotions, that sadness is bad, that anger is bad, that uh, envy is bad, that all the emotions that we think of as negative, they're bad things. And what we need to do to grow is to just remove them, erase them from our experience. The first part is you're not going to be successful because we feel those things. They come up. You're going to experience them. And also, if you think that way, you're going to judge yourself negatively because inevitably you're going to feel those things. You're going to feel bad about yourself because you are going to feel sad sometimes. And if you think it makes you weak or bad or not okay to feel sad, well, then you're not going to feel good about yourself when you have those feelings. It's just like if someone said, I don't want to ever get tired. And then every night when they feel like going to sleep, 
they feel bad about themselves because they think, well, I should be stronger and being awake is more productive than being asleep. And why am I doing this? Not realizing it's very human and natural and they need that sleep. We need our negative emotions. And even I don't like calling them negative because um, they have some good value to them. Sometimes when we try to distinguish between them, the negative emotions that we think about are the ones that when we're experiencing them don't feel very pleasant. So sadness can be one of those. Anger can be one of those. Guilt can be one of those. But all of those emotions have very good sides to them too. There's a reason why we experience those things and we can actually cultivate the good out of them. But if we don't have the tolerance to let ourselves even feel those feelings, we won't allow for us ourselves to experience that. So it could be something important to ask yourself, how good am I at tolerating negative emotions or negative states, negative states of affairs? This also has to do with our life. You get into a frustrating situation. Of course, first you see if you can change it, but sometimes you can't. You're sitting in traffic and you can't change it and you can you might get upset and that's okay but if you get so intolerant of what you're experiencing you'll just make yourself more and more angry in a negative way by getting angry at something that can't be changed like i said just a few minutes ago i'm not saying anger is a bad feeling but you're making yourself more angry because you're not accepting the situation similarly if we don't accept our feelings we get more uh, upset and can have more of a battle with ourselves rather than allowing the waves of emotion to come and go as they do, learning from them, observing them, and recognizing that we can actually become much more connected to ourselves by feeling the feelings rather than trying to push them away. So I think it's good to look at yourself and see where do you think you range on that. There are some tests online I'm sure you can find that are usually self-report where you can try to learn about yourself, but something just to think about on your own. And the good thing is it is something you can improve on. You can become better with this, of sitting with your feelings. I would definitely recommend meditation as one way of doing that, but also just looking at your own relationship with your emotions can play a big part of that. Do I see certain feelings as intolerable or that they shouldn't exist? Am I okay being sad sometimes uh, and, and just letting that be and not trying to change it? But improving in your distress tolerance will make you healthier emotionally yourself, but also can make you... Uh, better in your relationships and even as a parent as you're able to tolerate your children's negative emotions and tolerate your own you'll be able to be there with them in an emotional way rather than trying to take away their feelings ignore their feelings or deny their feelings which we do to ourselves as well all right we've reached our last commercial break studio number 310-441-0555 you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hi dr farid hi thanks for calling sure first of all thank you and your father for truly helping all of us in many ways with our problems with life and our psychological problems so uh, from body truly bottom oh, of our heart we are so grateful and thankful I to appreciate you that. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's, we feel very lucky to get to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Farid, um, uh, my daughter, uh, who uh, was 
excellent student, um, truly A and A plus most of the time. And uh, she went to school in LA, um, and she was also working at a medical uh, center. Um, so she met uh, this gentleman over there at the time she was working and going to school. And uh, long story against uh, my wish and uh, the family's wish, she married uh, the, the man. Okay, and, how, old, uh, how old is she? She was 19 at the time oh, well, she got okay. married. That's young. How old is he? Uh, he was about 10 years older. Okay, so like 19 and he's about 29? Right. Okay. He was, uh, now, now they've been married almost four years. Okay. So, uh, yes, so, um, uh, of course, many things uh, was not right and we... We begged. I begged his mom. I begged himself. I explained the different uh, the difference of culture, background, language, and all that. And of course, um, none of this was acceptable. That part is a long story. And of course, my daughter was uh, very much feeling that no, he's the right one. And so no one from our family went to the wedding uh, except me, and I didn't want, but she begged me, and I mm. finally went to the wedding. So I, I had this feeling, you know, this mother instinct that for sure this is not a right marriage. Um, the man, uh, you know, a nice man, actually. He, he's a nice man for his own culture, his own background of religion. Uh, he is Mormon. And Mormon uh, are very different in many ways. And I do respect, of course, their belief, for sure, but that is different from ours and very, very different in many ways, especially when it comes to men and women and the way they look at women and all that. So um, after the marriage, uh, probably within a month or two, their problem started. And uh, his mom had told my daughter after they got married that whenever there is a problem between you and your husband, never discuss it with your mom or dad uh, or any of the family members. You guys uh, don't don't say anything so, um, to your family. Uh, so the problems are very, very big. But I, uh, you know, my daughter being a kind of a girl that um, many of her teachers during all her schooling time, um, they used to write me letters, uh, you know, telling me how wonderful personality she has, how helpful she always helps with math and physics with all her, you know, t uh, classmates, and uh, she also helps voluntarily a lot of people with uh, learning disability, very kind-hearted okay. and very caring girl. So um, now after all this, uh, and um, I've tried in many ways help, uh, to help her and to help the marriage. Uh, the, actually, she got pregnant uh, within two months, and which was not wanted. It happened. Uh, she wasn't planning it. And so, so did they have the child? Uh, uh, yes, she, she has she has a child okay. and she has another child. Now she has two children. One is six months old. The other one is uh, three years old. 
Okay. So I've uh, been married for four years. So uh, right now, my I have studied the Book of Mormon and I have tried to get educated with the culture and all that. I did before that, um, before they got married, and I knew this was wrong marriage, but she and he did not, and his mom, they did not listen to me. Um, there was a lot of background with him. Uh, my daughter is the only child, and there were almost uh, nine children in the family mm-hmm. between the two marriages they had. Um, so right now, my problem is I don't know how to talk to my daughter. Uh, she is now, uh, in a way, to me, uh, mentally uh, disturbed, totally, uh, because... Uh, she believes now that she, with being such a good girl in many ways and very educated and all that, uh, she believes that she's not a good person. She was praised too much by me and mm. the family. She, she, she now believes that uh, whatever is happening with the marriage is her fault. Um, and she has verbally said that. Uh, in many ways, I really, now that I'm talking to you, I, there are so many questions that I have that what to do for her, uh, but I feel like she is now mentally disturbed because um, she they have fights. She goes out of the house and then she uh, talks to some people because I'm not at the same stage where she is, mm-hmm. and then she's upset and then she cries and and then she goes back. It's just like this um, what's called battered women syndrome yeah. you know but is there physical abuse uh, yes she uh, i believe mentally not that he wants to do this but it's his culture it's mm-hmm. his it, he was missionary in in thailand um so for uh, for mormons um so he has learned his way uh, of belief but he has tried to kind of injected to my daughter uh, brain and she, he, he was successful because apparently I never knew that but I found out by some other people uh, that he uh, they took her to the Mormon church and uh, convert her to Mormonism mm-hmm. and whatever so, so she has between her own culture, her own way of bringing up and what they're teaching her and, and then they hired her a teacher to go once yeah. or twice a week okay. to the house to you know so so I think she she's confused That's yeah what, well so my, my, yeah go ahead yeah what is your question sorry go ahead okay my question is how to uh, how to talk to her because she does not want to talk yeah to me or any of the family members well you know what I'll say first and it's not uh, you know for you you can't go back and change this but I, I'm saying this for anyone also listening, is this is why I I, I think when it, you're dealing with this kind of situation, I know you said no one went to the, the wedding except for you, and even you didn't want to go. And this is why I, I don't like that approach, because I think a lot of times parents and family think, well, we don't want to approve of their relationship or their marriage, because then it's going to give them the idea that it's right, and I don't want to give them that approval, so I'm not even going to go, or I'm not going to approve, or I'm not going to or I might even disown, whatever it is they might think will be the better option. But what they then do is they push their 
their child more towards that person and isolate them even more, which is exactly what's happened to your daughter. She she lost her support from you guys, and it seems like, again, I'm only hearing your side, but that his family has been uh, pressuring her in a lot of different ways and c trying to take her in and make her completely theirs in that way. And she really had not a lot of support any other way, so she went there. And that's unfortunate, but that's kind of where we find ourselves now. So... I, I say this to other families because I've seen it so many times before where they say, um, we're not going to accept the relationship. We don't want him or her to come over. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it does a few things. One is, like I said, it pushes them towards that person. Two, what sometimes happens is the person in the relationship might have their own concerns, but because you're attacking the partner and the relationship so much, they become defensive and they never tell you about those things. And so it takes away that avenue of actually being a support, connecting, and letting your child or family member, whoever it is, think through the decision they're making. Now, in this situation, we can't go back in time and change that, but that's for anyone else listening to, to keep in mind. Um, you know, the only way we ever can talk to anyone is by having a good relationship with them. And so rather than just focusing on um, talking to her about this and convincing her, let's say, to get divorced or whatever it is on your mind, you have to build your relationship with her, whether that means visiting her, spending time with her. And your objective can't just be to end this marriage. It has to be to connect with her, to get closer to her. Because we only take the advice of people that we feel close to and we trust them and we feel like we can uh, value their opinion. Right. Dr. Fari, uh, my all by myself, not not many others uh, of the family. My brothers have talked to her and they've been nice to her, but they've never gone there or anything. They they've stayed, you know, quiet about it after the marriage. But myself, I have been there. I stayed with her for nine months. Um, I I have been extremely loving and can, I told my son-in-law that after they got married, of course, before that, they knew that I, I said, let's know the family know each other, you guys know each other, because after two months, he proposed to my daughter. Mm. And then uh, I was, uh, you know, just beside myself, so I called uh, his family and himself. So they waited two more months. Um, four, after four months, they got married because mm -hmm. I, I was so upset. Because I was telling him and his mom, you know, I'm sure you guys are wonderful people, but but uh, at least two years, let's wait. She's too young, she, she hasn't finished school, and many other reasons that I had, let's, each, let's know, for them know each other for two years. And of course, he didn't want to, and he convinced her not to wait. So, uh, but I, after they got married and everything was finished, I told him, you know, I have only one child, and now you're my son. She's my daughter, you're my son, and I do care for you, let's find out a way to, to understand each other more. He knew from the beginning that I didn't want that. I sent them, I even paid for it, to, for them to go to premarital uh, uh, therapy. Uh -huh. We only have about one or two, let me stop, we have about one or two minutes left, so I don't want to uh, oh, cut. Sorry. Yeah, okay. no, that's okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, go ahead. Right, and so I have been extremely nice to him from the bottom of my heart because uh, everything was done. There was nothing, and especially child came, and then another child. So uh, the the thing is that uh, he does not. He's nice, but he does not answer my. 
care and love that comes from the bottom of my heart, uh, you know, the way that he should. You know, it's just... Well, I, keep, I know you're right. saying that he like he should, but you really, you know you don't like him, or at least you don't like him for your daughter. No, so no, I, 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 okay. I, after they were done, I, I started to like him because I wanted to like him, sure. and I tried to find the good thing in him that was likable, uh, and and I did come from my heart, and he's smart. He knew that I'm, but I think it's different culture, whatever it is. Okay, but but what, what my makes. My main problem is now my daughter that she um, she's not feeling good at all mentally. Uh, she they, they fight probably three four. Okay, times a week. so what you have to you know just uh, uh, quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard for me to give you a solution. It's a not an easy I situation, understand. but. Um, you know, as I always tell people, you have to connect, you have to try to connect with her at her pain where she's hurting. So if you try to lecture her or tell her, I can see you're not happy or this is not right or this is bad, she's probably going to get defensive. But if you can ask her, how is the marriage going? Tell me about what's going on. And then when it comes to the pain, see if you can connect with her there. Like, oh, wow, that must be so hard what you're going through. Tell me more about what you're feeling. And try to let her know that it's not all her fault that a marriage of course goes both ways that he's responsible too for what uh is going on with them and like i said and i would also see you know your husband and whoever else you can get involved to get your family more connected to her this disowning I that have, essentially okay that's one that can help too she needs more support she needs more connection she has to feel less alone the more alone yeah. she feels, the more difficult it's going to be. You know, I'm, I'm actually just looking at time. We are out of time. Um, yeah. I, so I would hope you can I, call back, uh, you know, if, especially if I can bring you on earlier that we can talk some more. That would be great. Yes, I will definitely do that because okay. there is a lot more. Sure, I'm sure there is. Dr. Fari, thank you so much for your Oh, time. it's my pleasure. I'm glad we got to talk a bit. I hope we can talk more soon. Yes, I will. Okay, have a great you, day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, thank you to all the callers and listeners and to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Have a wonderful day.